Thank you all very, very much. Um, pray with me. Lord, that is what we want more than anything, for you to be glorified, for your name to be lifted high. Lord, we desire that because that is what is right and true and good, that your name is above all names. And Lord, in your goodness, when we look at your holiness, when we look at your glory, we experience freedom, we experience life, we're brought in more fully to our true identity as your beloved sons and daughters. And so this morning, God, we welcome your presence here. We look to you, the author, the pioneer, the per protect, perfecter of our faith. May, you, may we be changed because we have spent even just a moment in the goodness and glory of your presence. Amen. Well, it really is good to be here with you all this morning. It's been a really rich time of worship already. As Jennifer mentioned, um, I'm a familiar face to some of you and not to others. My name's Susanna Hoke. I served on staff here for a time and then moved in the fall to King Schools where I'm the campus pastor for a K-12 school. I'm really, people ask me, do you like it? I really do. I enjoy it. There's some really great energy. And I will say, do we have any Gen Z in the, in the room? I think we have some. Yes. Gen Z, I love you guys. You are just a remarkable generation. I mean, you are inheriting more change than any generation has ever seen. And you guys are just handling it with such remarkable kind of persistence. And um, there's some really great things about this generation. I'd encourage you guys to come on Wednesday. I know Pastor Chuck Hunt is going to be here from Fuller Youth to just talk about this remarkable generation and help us as um, older folks uh, understand that, that group a little bit more. So, um, yes, I am loving my, my role there. I usually start my chapels by saying, please remove your earbuds, please put your cell phones away, and don't elbow the person next to you. So I don't think I need to do that with this, this crew. Um, but yeah, it's good to be with you all this morning. We're moving through the season of Lent, and we're considering how the light of Christ illuminates our need for the cross. Lent is a season of preparation, preparing our hearts to understand and be able to grasp a little bit more fully the magnitude of Christ on the cross, the magnitude of his resurrection. Last week, I know uh, Pastor George talked about how Jesus illuminates our disordered desires to give us deep satisfaction this morning, we're going to talk about how Jesus illuminates our guilt to give us true forgiveness. The title that Pastor George told, uh, chose for this sermon is, When I Do What I Shouldn't Do. And as I read that, I sort of laughed because immediately a story came to mind uh, about one of my children. I do have permission to tell this story. When my eldest was about four years old, she went over to my sister's house, to her aunt's house, to play with her cousins. And pretty soon, my sister had to run a quick errand and told the kids that she would be right back. And as soon as they heard the car leave the driveway, the older cousins said, come on, Camille, let's, let's go, and let her out into the, the garage to the outside freezer. And they opened it up, 
and there was the secret stash of Oreo cookies. And they start, you know, they hand my innocent child some Oreos, and they're all eating these Oreo cookies happily until they hear the car return. And so the cousins, the older cousins, run and hide. They say, come on, Camille, get out of here. My sweet daughter doesn't quite know what's going on, and so she just stays there eating Oreo cookies. And it takes a minute for my sister to find her, and then the questions begin. Camille, what are you doing out here? Where are your cousins? Camille, are you eating Oreo cookies? And my sweet girl, even at four years old, sort of knew deep in her gut that the right answer to that question was nope. <laughs> but if you've ever tried to sneakily eat an Oreo cookie, you know that's not easy to do. You kind of end up with chocolate crumbs all over. And so even though the evidence showed that, yes, you have been eating Oreo cookies, deep in her gut, she knew to say no, right? We can all relate to that feeling of getting caught doing something that we shouldn't do. And we can all relate to that tendency to want to hide the cookie behind our back. This morning, as we continue through John's passion narrative, we're going to read about one of my favorite disciples, perhaps one of yours, Peter. This man, I love watching his journey with Jesus. We're going to read about him doing something that he shouldn't do and consider how his encounter with Jesus speaks to our own. As we turn to the Word of God, please join me again in prayer. Lord, thank you that you speak and you speak to us. You want us to know you. You've given us your presence. You've given us the, your witness, Jesus, and you give us these words of Scripture. Lord, as we turn to them, as we turn to you this morning, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see you. Open our ears to hear you. Soften our hearts to receive what you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our scripture this morning comes from John 18, verses 7 through 14. And just a reminder, we're picking up right where we left off last Sunday. Judas, they're in the garden. Judas has betrayed Jesus, and the soldiers are moving in to arrest him. And now hear, hear now the word of the Lord. Again, Jesus asked them, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you are looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the soldiers, their officer, and the Jewish police arrested Jesus and bound him. First they took him to Annas, who was the, fa the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better to have one person die for the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I do what I shouldn't do... 
So I really do love Peter. I'm fascinated and encouraged by his journey following Jesus. I think he mirrors our own in so many ways. As we read through the Gospels and his letters and Acts, we really get a front row seat to his continuing conversion or his continuing awakening to understanding who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. I think I like him because he, you know, he sticks his foot in his mouth quite a bit, right? He's such an eager friend and follower of Jesus. And you can picture him in this moment really feeling like he's coming to the rescue, right? He's so helpful. He wants to save our Savior. He wants to protect our Lord. In this scene, we can understand it, right? Jesus is about to get arrested. And so Peter steps in and heroically or perhaps reactively, cuts off this man's ear to save Jesus by force. We don't have time this morning, but if I would encourage you as you noodle on this this week to maybe think about Peter's response, that reaction to cut off, his sword, cut off the man's ear, and maybe consider what are those own, your own places where it's difficult for you to trust the way of Jesus. So our translation, the NRSV that we use, says it this way, that Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? But the NIV and other translations phrase it this way. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. In this exchange, Jesus rebukes, he corrects Peter. He commands him. And I wonder what went through Peter's mind in that moment. He's with a crowd of people. Jesus, who he loves, who he's left everything for, rebukes him, corrects him. If Peter's anything like me, what was going through his mind was, but I was just trying to be helpful. Or I thought that's what you might want me to do. Or, but Jesus, my plan is better. Or, who are you to command me to stop? And I wonder what Peter felt like in that moment when he was challenged. Again, if he's anything like me, he likely felt exposed and called out, perhaps a bit embarrassed, perhaps a bit defensive. Perhaps he went a bit towards shame. See, we don't really like being told that we are doing something we shouldn't do. Even at four years old, right, we're hardwired to deny. Nope, I have not been eating Oreo cookies. Yet, as followers of Jesus... One of our core beliefs is that there are things that we shouldn't do and that doing them creates our need for rescue. It creates the need for the cross. This season of preparing to come to the cross, part of that is recognizing our own need for rescue, our own need for salvation. And I do think that this is an increasingly countercultural message and as I prepared for this morning, I found myself not wanting to assume that we live as if this is true, because I know that I often do not. 
So I want to pause for a little bit on this idea that Jesus commanded Peter to stop. Is there a shouldn't that the light of the cross would reveal? And does this shouldn't create a problem that needs salvation? Do we have, as the old spiritual song, There is a Balm in Gilead Sings, do we have sin-sick souls? This beautiful spiritual that says there is a balm in Gilead that cures a sin-sick soul. So I want to begin by exploring this idea of sin-sickness, begin by exploring the implication of Jesus' command to Peter to stop. And as I do that, for better or worse, we'll see if it proves helpful. My mind went to a medical analogy. So as we talk about this, I want to propose that we think about this idea of the doctor, the diagnosis, the prescription, and the cure. So the doctor, who has the right to diagnose us? What gives Jesus the right to command Peter to put his sword away? Who says you can't eat Oreos from the outside freezer at 10 a.m.? Does God have the right to tell us what we can and cannot do? And before we say a quick, yes, of course, he's God. He has the right to tell us these things. This question really is the root, and I would say the lingering human struggle that we have with God goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and this whispered temptation, this whispered question. Who is God to tell you what you can and cannot eat? Who is God to tell you to place a limit around a tree? This is the reality of belief in God that we must deal with. Does he have the right to place limits on our life? And how do we think about that? Do we see that limit as trustworthy? Do we see him as trustworthy? Do we see goodness in that idea? Do we trust him when he says, stop? I've been reading this. I read a book this uh, fall called You Are Not Your Own by Alan Noble. I'd really recommend it. It's an excellent book. And it comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. The first question, I know we've talked about that in in this space here. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong both in body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a comfort in this, right? This belief that I am not my own. I don't belong to myself. I belong to God. And because of that, I don't have to justify the reason that I exist. I exist because God delights that I do. You exist because God in his love created you. We don't have to justify our existence. We receive it as a gift. I am who I am because God decided to create me in his image. You are who you are because God in his love and mercy and goodness and joy created you uniquely in his image. So I don't have to figure out my identity. I receive that as a gift from the one to whom I belong. There is so much goodness in that truth. But if I believe this, 
then I must also live within the boundaries of this relationship. I must live within the limit of belonging to God and into the truths of his world and his way. Noble says this in his book. He says, if we belong to ourselves, we are, yes, radically free with all the accompanying glory and terror. But if we belong to God, then our experience of belonging in the world has limits that we have not freely chosen. We retain the agency to violate that limit, but doing so violates the reality of our right relationship to our neighbor and God. So this is the first thing we must consider. Does God have the right to diagnose us? Does he have the right to command Peter to put away his sword? Does he have the right to tell me, stop? See, to claim Jesus as our Savior means confessing that we need saving. And to allow Jesus to be our Savior, he must also be our Lord. This is how scripture identifies him, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We cannot separate the two. And if he is our Lord, then yes, he has the right to tell us when we must stop. This is what's reflected in David's Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So if he is the doctor, what is his diagnosis? What is the shouldn't part of this? Right, and we know that, that uh, we use the word to describe our condition as sin. Many of you are familiar that the word sin is in the, both Hebrew and Greek is an archery term. It's this idea of missing the mark. If you think about an arrow that's supposed to, to um, fly straight and true to hit the bullseye, to sin is to miss the mark. I want to offer two other kind of analogies or ideas as we unpack this idea of what this shouldn't is. Sometimes I think sin can feel like this vague thing, like, or, you know, a piece of kale in your teeth. Like, I kind of get it, but kind of not. So two images that have come up for me as I reflected on this about sin. One comes from this book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And in it, Lewis describes this young man who's tormented by a red lizard that's sitting on his shoulder. And the red lizard sits there and mocks him, and it's kind of got its talons into him. <clears throat> For Lewis, the lizard represents the presence of sin and our struggle with it. Right on one hand, this lizard is tormenting this man. He's preventing this young man from moving closer to God. And in, in the great divorce, an angel comes and he asks the man's permission to get rid of the lizard. See, the angel has the power to free this man from this lizard, but he cannot do it without the man giving permission. And so he asks the man, may I rid you of this? And at first the man is thrilled, but then he, realize, he realizes that to get rid of it, the angel will kill it. And the man falters a little bit and he says this. He says, maybe you don't have to kill it. Maybe you don't have to get rid of it entirely. It's not that bad. Can't we just do this another time? I'll come back. The angel says, in this moment are all moments. Either you want the red lizard to live or you do not. 
And I find this to be this, I read, when I read this, it stuck with me for years, this image, what a powerful image of sin and the inner conflict we face. We all have our red lizards, right? We all have these things that torment us, but that we're not quite ready to get rid of. And yet in this story and in life, they must be killed for us to be free of them. Another image of sin that's come to mind comes from St. Augustine, an African theologian, and he says this. He says, the essence of sin is disordered love. If all the law and the prophets, as Jesus says, if all of the law and prophets can be contained in the two commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Sin is a disordering of these loves. He goes on to unpack that a little bit more. He says, to have a well-ordered heart is to love the right thing in the right degree, in the right way, and with the right kind of love. I don't necessarily love the right and wrong language here, but I think what I, he's getting at, I, I do appreciate to have a well-ordered heart is to love. And the essence of sin is a disorientation or a disordering of these loves. The right thing in the right degree, in the right way, with the right kind of love. And I see this in Jesus' exchange with Peter. Right, Peter, this isn't the right way. I want you to trust my plan. See, the cross of Christ offers a diagnosis to me and to you that something is not right, that our heart is not well-ordered, that we need salvation. And again, in today's sort of you-do-you worldview, this really is very countercultural. I do not define my own truth. I receive truth from the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. So if that is the diagnosis, what is the prescription? Because the good news is, I talk to kids a lot and I tell them the good news in a weird way, right, is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's not surprised by our sin, right? He's not surprised when we do what we shouldn't do. And so there actually is so much freedom that's offered to us in this reality that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because there is a prescription and because there is a cure. So what is the prescription? Confession and repentance, right? We know these words. Confession simply to tell the truth, to say out loud what we have done, what we shouldn't have done, to bring that into the light, simply to tell the truth of who we are. And once we've done that, repentance, to change directions, or to turn towards God. Confession sounds so simple, right? To just tell the truth sounds so simple. And yet I think this can be the hardest step. We do not like being exposed in this way. We can imagine what Peter must have felt like because we felt the same. And so we think like that man, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe this lizard is not that bad. And yet, in this place of confession, this is where we see the work and power of the light 
of Christ. I have a picture I want to show you all. Any guesses on what this is? This was like the least gross picture of this I could find. Anybody know? Oh, that's like a very scientific word. Yes. What's it? What? Anybody? Mold. This is mold. Yes. The least gross picture of mold I could find. Okay. What's one of the best ways to get rid of mold? Heat, light. Bring it into the sunlight. Right? Mold that grows and multiplies in darkness. The one of the best ways, most effective ways to stop its growth and to cure it is to bring it into sunlight. Sunlight is an, I learned this, sunlight is an antiseptic, an antibiotic, and an antifungal. Right? This is a way where science is helping us show, show us a biblical truth. When we bring mold into the sunlight, it, it's cured. The growth stops. This is what confession is. Bringing something into the light of Christ. Exposure can feel like death, right? Being caught, being told you shouldn't, or telling yourself I shouldn't. We can go into this denial, right? We can stay in the dark. And yet, confession is the invitation to step into the light. And there we experience healing and freedom and life. In that moment of confession are all the moments. Stepping into the light, allowing the light of the cross to expose us, this is a gift. This is the path to healing and freedom. This is the prescription that Jesus offers us. John later in one of his letters says it this way, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and forgives, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The cure we know is the cross. The body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us, open and available for us to cling to and claim each and every day, each and every moment, in all of our moments. The one with the authority to diagnose us is also the one with the authority to cure us. We cannot save ourselves, but we can be saved by Jesus. And cure us, he does. I think one of the most profound moments, perhaps in all of scripture, is that moment on the cross when Jesus breathes in his last and he says, it is finished. And the ground shakes and the dead rise and the curtain in the temple is torn in two so we have access to the Father. We are cured by him proclaiming it is finished. There's two really prophetic truth-telling words in the text that we read. One comes from a man that doesn't even realize what he's saying, Caiaphas, the, the high priest, and he advised the Jews that it was better to have one person die for the people. 
He was thinking in a really literal sense of what was going on in Jerusalem at that time and how that would be a better solution, not realizing the truth of what he was saying. Because yes, it would be better. It is better for one man, Jesus, to die for all people. This is what Jesus does. And Jesus offers his own words of truth, prophetic words. I will not lose a single one. Because no matter what we've done, no matter how many times we've done it, no matter what we will do, he will not lose us as we turn to him for salvation. I want to go back to Peter and his story. After this command that Jesus gave to stop, put your sword away, Peter takes a road that I think I am all too familiar with. Perhaps it's a familiar road for you as well. He goes to denial and shame. Peter leaves the garden that evening and he follows in the shadows as Jesus faces trial. Three times, we might be familiar with the story, three times that night as Peter is kind of lurking in the darkness and around campfires that evening, he denies knowing Christ. This man that he's given his life for, this man he's left everything to follow. First he's rebuked by Jesus and then he does the very thing that he swore he would never do. He denies Christ. We could imagine what he felt like, what a failure he felt like, how low his head, head, his head hung. I think sometimes we can get in that spiral. It's kind of interesting that in one of those exchanges, in the third one, almost as if to rub salt in his wound, he's asked by a relative of the man whose ear he cut off, did I not see you in the garden with him? That slave, Malchus, whose ear he cut off, a relative of his, was the third person that asked him, do you know Christ? And this final time, Peter denies him. This road that we walk can sometimes be of denial and shame. Sometimes we can go there when we've done something that we shouldn't do or when we know we need to bring something into the light. But meanwhile, as Peter walked that road, Jesus walked the road to Calvary. Jesus walked the road to the cross. And we can imagine, and I think actually we can know, that as Jesus hung on that cross, he had Peter on his mind. Just as he had you and me on his mind. And after Jesus rose from the dead, he sought Peter out. And he asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I do. Peter, how is the ordering of your heart and your loves? Peter, do you wish to confess your love for me? And once again, around a fire, Jesus shined the light of the cross on Peter, as he does on us, offering forgiveness and freedom and restoration. We do not need to fear the light of Christ, for in it we find life. We do not need to fear God shining his light on us, exposing us. 
We do not need to fear the light of the cross, for in its light we find freedom, we find forgiveness, we find restoration, we find the balm of Gilead that cures our sin-sick soul. So I wonder where you are this morning. Perhaps you're wrestling still with God's right to diagnose us. You're wrestling with that question. I would have imagined many of us, myself included, are wrestling with your own red lizard or disordered loves, as Augustine phrases it. I wonder if you're wrestling with needing to trust the healing of coming into the sunlight, into the light of Christ. Perhaps some of us here are needing more and more wanting to take hold of the cure that the cross of Jesus offers us. I do want to, as I kind of got to the end of this, I I wanted to create a moment for us to bring something to Jesus. Imagine we all have some of those things that we want to bring to Jesus, or perhaps it's coming to him. If you need freedom from sin... If you want to trust Christ for your salvation, I want to give a space for that. Peter goes on. We know this, right? Peter's story doesn't even end with that restoration. Peter goes on. Jesus says to him, On you and your confession, Peter, of me, I will build my church. The story of the great divorce, the man does say, yes, I want to be rid of this. And in that moment, the angel takes a sword and plunges it into the lizard. The lizard doesn't die. The lizard turns into a white stallion that the man climbs on and rides closer into his journey with God. Sometimes that thing that we feel like is going to kill us becomes the thing that God uses in our life to set us free and even to do a work greater and beyond we could ask or imagine. So let's take some minute, uh, some time to just of prayer and reflection. Jesus, thank you that you offer us life, that there is nothing that we have done or will do that cannot receive the light of your salvation. Lord, there are things that we need to be set free of and we have no place else to look, no place else to go but to you. And so Holy Spirit, I ask that you would bring to mind the things that are weighing us down, our lizards, if you will, whether that's anger or pride or addiction. And as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you want to step into the light of that, if you want to be free of that, I'd invite you just to raise your hand. It's an act of faith to receive the light of Christ. And if you this morning... We we know and trust that Jesus has said yes to every single one of us. If you this morning find yourself 
wanting to say yes to Jesus, to come to the cross perhaps for the first time and to take hold of the life and freedom and cure that Jesus offers you, I want to invite you to, to just raise your hand and say yes to Jesus. Thank you. Jesus, thank you for the freedom that you give us. Lord, these things that we've confessed, these things that we've laid down, Lord, as we leave this place, help us to trust and believe that they do not come with us, that you have set us free from them, that we do not need to feel guilt or shame, that your forgiveness sets us free of all of that. And for those who have said yes to you, Jesus, pray that you would continue to draw them close. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you withheld nothing from us, not even your very self, to allow us to walk into light and freedom. May we leave this place changed by the truth of who you are and because of that, who we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we continue in worship, um, after the service, there will be people here available to pray with you encourage you if you let something go this morning that you would come up and um, just share that experience and ask for prayer.